So last week, uh, we we got into it a little bit, okay? And I would, and I'll say this: if you weren't here with us last week, uh, it was crazy, okay? So last week is not the normal for kind of how things are going to go uh, on a Sunday morning. Last week was crazy. We just had so many so many new people, and I went and drove the bus at the BSM for breakfast and back, and then we had lunch and. It was crazy. So uh, normally, it's not going to be as rushed feeling. I felt like last Sunday was a little bit rushed feeling. We won't be as rushed uh, normally. We'll uh, get in here and worship and spend some time, um, and then then we'll get into the, uh, the the teaching time. And it'll be a little bit, typically a little bit longer than it was last week. But um, last week, really, the question was, uh, what are you going to? And it's for all of us. Uh, what are you going to? How are you going to define your time in Nacogdoches? What, what is the way in which you're going to define your time in Nacogdoches? Is it going to be, because uh, some of you, especially for students, uh, this may be pretty short-lived. Uh, you, I think I tripped on this last week and complained about it, didn't I? Okay, if I go down, someone is in trouble. Uh, so we talked about, uh, some of you are students, and uh, your time here in Nacogdoches may be pretty short-lived. I mean, it could be... Uh, is it maybe two, three, four years, um, and maybe five or six, uh, depending on how you uh, how you move through school, and uh, and it could be pretty short lived. And there, it's real tempting to kind of uh, just th- think of this place as very uh, temporary. This is just where I'm gonna I'm gonna be here for a little bit, and all of my goals, uh, you know, my orientation to Nacogdoches is gonna be based on school and based on something temporary. And my caution to you is that you're gonna miss the bigger work that God wants to do. You're gonna miss the fact that God has brought you here for a purpose, and that purpose is not just to get a degree. Look at me. Get a degree. I didn't say don't get a degree. I didn't say don't work hard in school. Because some people leave yet last week's message and they're like, woohoo, pastor said it's not about school. So don't tell your parents that I said that, okay? Because I don't want to get an email. And, uh, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm, just, I'm saying that, that we have to view our time it's bigger than that. The bigger question is, what does God want to do in and through you during this season of your life? And we read, I want, to, I want you to go there again. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. We read from, uh, from this passage, and we talked about the cost. What is it going to, what is it going to cost uh, for us to be used by God? Because I, I, what I wanted to, you know, have some caution in is just getting you all pumped up and, um, and excited and, and believe that if God's going to do something great in my life, that it's not going to cost me anything. If God's going to use me in the lives of other people, if God's going to use me to reshape the community that I'm in, it's not going to cost me anything. And it's really easy for us to get excited about what God wants to do, but it's a whole nother thing for us to be willing to sacrifice uh, what God asks of us, which is nothing less than all of who we are, that's the part where we, where we kind of seem to backtrack a little bit. And so I wanted to read, and I want to just read this again, because it's what really, I think, uh, over the last few days, uh, over the last week, really, has, uh, has given me a focus for what we're going to be talking about for the next uh, few weeks. So here's this passage, and, and Paul has just said that God, in verse 20 of chapter 5, that God is making his appeal uh, through us, that this is the way that God has chosen to work, is, is in tandem with his people, to make his appeal through us uh, for the gospel. Now, in chapter 6, he says, Working together with him, this is verse 1, Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I'm going to read 13 verses, so stick with me. 
We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found within our ministry. Uh, Sorry, with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now listen to this list. This is, this is an important list for you to pay attention to. It's a long list, but this is the cost. This is what Paul is saying is the cost of making Christ known. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Who wants to go? Right? This is the rah-rah speech. God is making his appeal through us, and this is what it costs. And and the list continues, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known. As dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. Now, this is the cost that we have to be willing to lay down in order to see God do something great in our midst. It's not a question of whether or not God wants to do it. God has chosen to partner with his people, but what he's asked of his people is one thing, sacrifice. One thing he's asked, will you present yourselves as a living sacrifice? Why sacrifice? Well, you say, well, no, no, no. All God asks is that I love him. Well, love is shown in what? Sacrifice. Jesus says, you prove, you prove your love by doing what I say. Obedience, sacrifice. God is asking of us, are you willing to turn loose of the reins of your life? Are you willing to turn loose of the reins of this thing that we think we have called control and let me use you to, in whatever way that I want to use you? And this is what it's going to cost you, but I am faithful. It may mean beatings and imprisonments. It may mean that that sometimes you're treated with honor. But it may mean that sometimes you're treated uh, with dishonor. It doesn't matter. The, The stability that we have in our lives, the fulfillment that we have in our lives, doesn't come from how we're treated based on how we live. It comes from who we're living in, right? And that who we're living in is Christ Jesus who fills us all in all. And that's why we sing things like, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you because the work that God has called us to is going to require that we know closely the indwelling presence of God who is in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Without that relationship, without that constant abiding presence and you knowing that constant abiding presence, then going through the list that Paul lays out in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is going to be impossible because you'll go through it based on your flesh. And in the hard times, you will be too weak. And in the good times, you will be too prideful. Uh, we have to have that balance that comes from the Spirit of God in us. Anyway, this is the price. This is the cost. I didn't want to preach on that again this morning. It's what I, I began to ask, okay, God, I'm not sure that this generation's really taken uh, uh, by surprise. Does that, I don't think I, does that surprise you that I list the cost? I think maybe in previous generations we'd go, ooh, I don't know about that. But I'm not sure that that really catches you off guard. I think many of you are like, all right, where do I sign up? <laughs> 
That's what I love about your generation. That's what I, that's what I love about, uh, about working with you is that I really believe that for the most part, you'll go, okay, that is the cost. Where do I sign up? I get it. I know that it'll cost me. I know that, I know that this is going to require of me to lay down my life. But here's the deal that I love about you. You're not afraid of much. You're not afraid of much. And so I don't think that you, uh, I don't think that you get nervous when I talk about the, when I talk about the cost. So what I want to do is I want to give you a picture of what I feel like uh, this looks like. A picture of what I feel like this movement looks like. Because these movements of people laying down everything and coming after God, this has happened before. You will not be the first. I believe that God wants to do a great work in and through you and your generation, but you will not be the first. This has happened before. There's a process uh, of where this, this kind of this cycle uh, of reform, this cycle of revival uh, repeats itself. And, and I believe, if you, look at, if you look at history, I believe that we, uh, we're in those days where the opportunity for God to have a fresh work in our nation is now. And I believe that he's called you to that work. I wouldn't be standing here. I couldn't stand here if I didn't actually believe that God had called you into this thing. That God had called you to be the ones that lead in a refreshing that will come from God, but through your generation in our nation. So what I want to do over the next few weeks is I want to show you a picture of what it has looked like before. I want to show you a picture of a a 25-year-old, 25-year-old, who began to rule a nation. And based on his leadership, uh, massive revival came. Now, he had a bit of trouble at the end, and we have to, we're going to watch out for that. We're going to look at that. But go to Second Chronicles. That's right. I didn't say Corinthians. Some of you are like, what's Chronicles? <laughs> it's this wacky thing we've got that's most of our Bible called the Old Testament. <laughs> and yes, God speaks in the Old Testament. Did you know that when we read the New Testament and it refers to the scriptures, that it doesn't act, it's not talking about the New Testament? They didn't have that. <laughs> Did you know that every time the scripture is mentioned, it's talking about the text of the Old Testament? Isn't that cool? So is the gospel in the Old Testament? Everybody nod. <laughs> it better be, right? Because every time we read in the New that it's talking about the gospel in the scriptures and the revelation of Christ and the Messiah in the scriptures, it's talking about what's in the Old Testament. Everybody say amen. All right. So here we go. Here's our new topic. Our new topic is going to be to study a man named Hezekiah. All right. Now that's fun, right? You got, did you meet anybody in your classes named Hezekiah? Is anybody in here named Hezekiah? No? Okay. Any Hez? No Hezes? No Kayas? Okay. All right. That's, uh, that's a great name. So we're going to study Hezekiah. Now, I, as I told you, Hezekiah is the, uh, he's going to become the king of Judah uh, at the age of 25. And what I want to do today, who likes history? Okay, history's like olives. You either love them or hate them, right? And uh, anybody, right? Olives? Nobody's, nobody's like, oh, I could do an olive or two. You know, it's, like, it's always like, I hate them. If I smell them, I want to, you know, it's like, or, or, or it's olives in, in, in droves. I'm one of those olives in droves. Like, I want them on my pizza, in my salad, in my cereal. I, not in my cereal. Not in my cereal. Right? But I want, I want olives. And then some of you, just by me talking about that, like, need to excuse yourself. Uh, so, anyway, what was I saying is like olives? 
History, thank you. Hezekiah, I was like, where am I going with that? Hezekiah is not like olives. <laughs> history, all right, here we go, here we go, focus. Sorry, sorry, I, I messed this up. Okay, yeah, you either love it or hate it. Today is going to be history, okay? It's all going to be history. History is actually exciting. History is just a telling of a story. Everything that you're in right now is becoming history. Your story is becoming history. It's wonderful for us to look back uh, in the story of other people and how God has intersected their lives, how God has used them. And that's what we're going to do today because what we can learn from this is, I think, a great amount. We can learn from his attitude. We can learn from his mistakes. We can learn from his history, right? The, the history that he came from. And we can learn uh, the way in which he brought about revival. And we're going to study that. I think it's probably going to take us about five weeks, okay? So just, uh, just to give you a bit of an overview here, um, he, the, the story of Hezekiah can be found in where? Second Chronicles. That's where we're at. We're at uh, chapter 29 through 32. We're also going to be in Second Kings chapter 18 through 20. Now that covers a more specific period um, of his life. Uh, it really, it's actually the majority of that text is one big, uh, one story, okay? And then we're also gonna be in Isaiah chapter 36 through 39. Now we're not gonna study each of those uh, in, in detail. That's just where you can find Hezekiah's story. So if you're one of those people that likes to leave here and then go and, and read and, and do a little bit more, that's where I would tell you to read, get the full story. You're gonna have to read all those together it's, uh, it's not very orderly. You're going to have to read all those together and kind of piece it together. Okay, so the reason that I want to talk about this is because Hezekiah, and we're going we're to look at it in detail, but he came into power. Uh, number one, he came into power at the age of 25. I just said it. So he came into, the power, into power at the age of 25. It is, this is where you're at. I mean, this, he came into power at the same time of his life that, that you guys are in. The other reason I think it's really, really, really important is he, he came into power when his nation was not following after God. His nation was, they did not have their hearts turned to the Lord. They, in large part, had stepped away from, uh, from the Lord. There were a few, and God always promises to keep a remnant, to keep a few who will serve him. But, but by and large, this was a nation that was not serving the Lord. And they came from, his rulership came in a succession of rulers who had not followed uh, the Lord. And we're going to look at that uh, here and, and study it. And so I feel like it gives us a good picture of really where we're at. Uh, I'm not one of those doom and gloom on America guys. Uh, you know, you'll hear that a lot, that our nation is just going to hell in a handbasket. And, uh, and, and I, I think we can, we, we can do one of two things. We can take that approach and many of you might have, you might've gone, it's, we're just, we're just doomed. It's over. Um, and, and you probably have some some decent reasons why that's why that's the case, um, and uh, and I and I can't argue. I mean, I think we've got a lot of a lot of major major issues uh, in our, in our country. If you just look at, at the news uh, over the last year, over the last six months, you'd go, "What is happening? Where is the heart?" Of these, of these people? What could have happened that would create these headlines? Because what we're seeing happen, the, the headlines are a reflection of the culture, and the culture is a reflection of individual hearts, isn't it? Nothing happens as in, a, in a large group, as a culture. Nothing happens without first happening in individual hearts, right? It's just a manifestation of what's happening in individual hearts. And so what we're seeing is a reflection of the true heart of our nation. And you could look at that and go, ugh, right? But that's what also, honestly, it's what gives me hope. 
If, if that's the way that culture works, if it's the reflection of the hearts of individuals, that's what gives me hope because I look out and I go, okay, then we've got a chance here. Because God is, is number one, he's big enough to change a whole nation. We believe that, right? But is God big enough to change your heart? Is God big enough to radically transform the sin-infested people that we are into people full of grace and the Holy Spirit? Can God do that? Can God make what is dirty, righteous, and clean, and forgiven? We are living and breathing examples of the grace of God in lives. And if God can do that in our life, and if culture is a reflection of what happens in individual lives, then I go, come on, because <laughs> we got a shot here. Because God can, if God can change my wickedness and then wants to use me in the lives of other people, this thing might snowball and eventually there might be hope again in this nation. So I don't know. You, I think you can take one or two sides. You can take the headlines and go, Bleh. or you can go, there's hope. And I, I just would, I want to always be found hoping that God can bring a mighty work, right? If he returns and goes, Kendall, you, ho- you hoped in the wrong thing, I'm going to go, okay, we need to talk about that because according to this book, hope's supposed to be steadfast and remain always as long as you're on the throne, right? And he's on the throne, and so we're going to have hope. And so people that, that have hope, that believe that revival's possible, have to first examine themselves in the culture that they're in. And that's what I want us to do. That's what I hope happens here. So um, anyway, that's why we're studying him. Everybody nod, you with me? That's why we're studying Hezekiah. I think he gives us a good picture of what God wants to do in our day, all right? So here's the history. You ready? So uh, Israel was at one time uh, Israel. Now, the design was that God would, uh, God would always be the sovereign ruler of the nation uh, of Israel, that they would, he had appointed priests and Levites to come to him to pour out sacrifice in the temple, that their relationship with God would revolve around sacrifice and holiness, that that's the way that God would meet with his people. But the way that God's people would be led, we saw this as soon as they were rescued from Egypt, the way that they would be led was by uh, the presence of God. That this would be their leader, that the presence of God, that the person of God would be the leader of his people. That's the way that God designed it. Well, there was a lot of belly aching in the wilderness. There was, a lot of, there was a lot of whining. There was a lot of complaining. And then they got established and they went, listen, we look around in the nations and everybody else has this thing called a king. Now, God, we know that we've, you've been set up as our king, but everybody else has this human that acts as a king. And we would really like that. We'd really like to look like the nations look. Now, that's a problem, isn't it? Because God has called out a people for himself that would operate totally differently than the rest of the world. But anyway, they want this king, and so God establishes a king. And that first king is Saul. Good. All right. We're awake. That's right. 10, 12, college class. You guys got some answers. All right. So uh, Saul is that first king. Now, Saul starts out good, doesn't he? Yeah, you read the story of Saul. We always hear Saul, and we're like, oh, Saul. He's this bad dude. He didn't start out that way. Uh, but, but Saul eventually began to, uh, he kind of he flipped out, kind of went crazy, began to just uh, love the idea of himself uh, more than he liked the idea uh, of God. And then God raised up a new king, right? There it is. Woo, y'all are on fire. All right, so he raises up a new king, David. And bonus points, what's the prophet that anoints David as king? Goodness gracious. It's like right in that Aggie area that is the, the answer, which is amazing to me, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's my last Aggie joke. It just, I don't know, football season starts and my Aggie jokes start really, I'm sorry. It's just, anyway. So, 
So he raises up the next king. And the next king is David. Now, what do we know about David? What was David? Was he a good king or a wicked king? Yeah, I mean, I like David. (laughs) I like that answer, right? Here's the deal. David was wicked, wasn't he? We always think of David like hero, right? David was awful. I mean, we look at David's rap sheet and it's pretty rough. I mean, he's got cool things on it like Goliath and, you know, some of those deals. But he's also, he's also got murder. He's also got adultery. He's also got deception, right? He's also got cowardice and fear, right? He's got some of those things on there that, that, are, that are not so glamorous. But here's what's, here's what's real and true about David. And it's why David was, uh, is still looked at as, as this great king, because David loved God. At the end of all of his mistakes, at the end of his long list of issues, David had a heart for the Lord. And, and, and God acknowledged that. David had a heart for God. Then there is David's son. Now, who's this? Almost. <laughs> finish the sentence. There we go. Finish the word. Saul. Amun, Solomon, right? Solomon is raised up in David's place after David is, uh, is the king and Solomon begins. Now Solomon also starts out good. He's like Saul, uh, but he, he starts out good and then uh, it kind of goes down the tubes. Now, after Solomon, it really gets nasty, okay? So here's, the, here's just, I'm going to go through this pretty quick, but it gets really nasty after Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom divides, okay? So what was once all considered Israel now splits. And there's the northern kingdom of Israel that has how many tribes? The whole thing's 12. We're going to do a little math. Nope, no 20. I'll give you a hint. The split is 10 and 2, okay? The northern uh, consists of Israel consists of how many tribes? Dude, not four, ten. <laughs> the split is ten and two. Okay, so here we go. Come on, guys. I'm just warming you up for school. Here we go. Okay, so the split is ten and two. Okay, Israel. So when from so after Solomon, this gets a little confusing because after Solomon, you have to recognize that when you hear the word Israel, it's not talking about the entire nation all of the time. Okay, Israel consists of twelve tribes, and ten of them are in Israel, which is the nor- what we'll call the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, ten tribes split; two are left, and they are called Judah. Good. So there's two tribes in the south. The southern kingdom is called Judah. There's ten tribes in the north. The, su- the northern kingdom is called Israel. Now Israel goes totally down the tubes. There is not one, not one, except for Jehu, and Jehu's goodness lasts for a tiny period of time. Every other king uh, in Israel is totally wicked. We're talking about idolatry. We're t- I mean, we're talking about total turn from God in every king except for Jehu, and he is he's okay for a moment. But we're going to focus on uh, on Judah. Judah had pretty much the same issues. Okay mostly wicked rulership in this succession of kings in in Judah. But there were some that were good, but mostly the ones that were good had just brief moments of goodness. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the three that are leading up to uh, that are leading up to Hezekiah. So go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Again, I did not say 2 Corinthians. 2 Chronicles. Smile everybody. We're having fun this morning, aren't we? Okay. All right, so this is the momentum leading up to um, uh, Hezekiah. 
All right, uh, it, you're in chapter 26 of Second Chronicles. This is going to be uh, about uh, Uzziah. Okay, now listen to uh, verse 15. I think I got this marked right here. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be, the, uh, be on the towers and corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread uh, far, for he was marvelously helped. Now, what's that, what are those last three words? Till he was... Yeah, here's where the shift begins for uh, Uzziah. So he, he's actually doing good. This is one of those, those glimmers of hope. In weakness, he's doing well. And then we, we, we see it's recorded that all of a sudden his kingdom begins to build strength. And it says, and he was marvelously helped until he was strong. But when he was strong, what did he grow? He grew proud to what? His destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now we read that and go, okay, so what? He goes in to burn a little bit of incense. What's wrong with that, right? What's wrong with that is that he's not allowed in. He's not a priest, right? He's not of the tribe that God called that, that is to be the ones. He's not a Levite. He cannot come in and, and burn incense. He has is, he is grown so proud, so proud, that he has said, I will go in whenever I want into the presence of the Lord. And he barges himself in. And he's, they try to stop him, but he says, it's not. Uh, look, look at verse uh, 18. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. But for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong. And it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. And Uzziah was angry. And it all goes downhill. The Lord strikes him with leprosy and, uh, and it's over for him. He had this glimmer of hope in a kingdom that things were going to be returned back to a normal state of serving the Lord. And he grew strong and with his strength grew pride and he fell. Okay, so that's three back. There's the next guy. Look at chapter 27. Jotham. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerushas, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done, except he didn't enter the temple of the Lord. But the people still followed corrupt practices. Now, what does this guy sound like? He did all that was right in the eyes of the Lord, except for he didn't come into the temple. Now, what does this mean? We, we look at that and we go, okay, well, he did pretty good, right? Basically, all he did is stay out of trouble. He didn't actually do anything good. He, he lived the way that Uzziah lived, except for he didn't worship. Now think about that. He behaved well. He did all that was right in the, eye, in this, in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't just give himself over to idolatry, but he was apathetic in the area of worship. And what does it say? He didn't enter the temple, and what did the people do? Come on, guys, we've got to make this connection. Did the people change? No. Why? Because there was apathy in the area of worship from that which was supposed to be their lead. All that he did is behave well. And I want to tell you that good behavior does not change culture. You will not lead a movement of God in our nation if all you do is act right. David is proof of this. David didn't act right much of the time. Now, I'm not saying this is an excuse for you not to act right, but what David did do is he worshipped. He worshipped fully in front of the Lord. 
And because of that, he experienced the grace of God and the things that the enemy would love to use for, for, uh, for harm, the things that David did wrong, that God was able to use them for good. Why? Because David worshipped. Now this guy, he just acted right. Now I want you to just think about the history of the church. How far has that gotten us? Teaching people to act right. And acting right ourselves. How heavy of a load is that to bear? Absent worship, just behaving correctly, is empty and lifeless. There's no worship in it. There's no intimacy in it. There's no loving of God in, the, in that expression. Now, you may say, well, it's obedience. It's not obedience if it's not in worship. Because even acting right is idolatry. It's idolatry to you. It's saying this, that I can behave well enough to be called righteous, absent intimacy with God. And that cannot happen. You weren't built that way. The only way that righteousness flows from your life is found in John 15, and that's abiding in the branch, right? I mean, the branch abiding, right, in in him. You with me? We got to get this. If, if, if right acting comes from a place of abiding, then it's fruit of the Spirit. If right acting comes from a place, absent worship comes from your flesh, it's called pride. It's called arrogance. And it bears no fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that's all this guy did. Is he behaved well, but what, what happened? Nothing. Great. You behaved well. That's what's written of you in the Scriptures. You behaved well, but you didn't worship. And because of that, you left people... Uh, in a place of brokenness. All right, you ready? So that's, that's who else is left, right? So far, pretty good, pretty good momentum leading up to Hezekiah, right? We'd be excited about this, right? Okay. Here we go. Here's Ahaz. Now it gets better. Go to 28. It gets so much better. Just kidding. Ahaz, chapter 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. Finally, a 20-year-old in here. Here we go. And he reigned 16 years of Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Which, what do we just say about the kings of Israel? Corruption, right? He walked in the ways of the kings uh, of, uh, of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley uh, of the son of Hinnom. And burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So what what does this mean? Well, it means that it went from apathy to wickedness. And neither actually had a different result with the people. They, They both, the end result of both of these was a nation that was following not after God. And uh, at this point, uh, the, the, uh, the, the nation of Judah is attacked and weakened, right? So, so there's, now, there's, now there's been attack from a foreign army, and now they're weakened. And go to chapter, I mean, sorry, verse 22. In the time of his distress, so now it gets tense, right? There's attack. In the time of his distress, look at what Ahaz does. He becomes yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the king of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. One of these next words. But they were the ruin of him and all 
of Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God. This is devastating. And cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, proving, uh, provoking sorry, the anger of the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all of his ways from the first to the last, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem. For they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And look, and Hezekiah, his son, Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Uh Uh-oh. So at its worst, uh, you could argue, at its worst is under the rulership of whose father? Hezekiah. We read, we're reading and we're like, man, this Ahaz guy, let's get rid of him, get rid of him, get rid of him. And then we realize, whoa, this is Hezekiah's father. This is the precedent that has been set. So you have wickedness, apathy, wickedness, Hezekiah. All right? This is the momentum leading into Hezekiah's rule. And, and, and so three years uh, into Hezekiah's reign, just, just some quick background stuff, and then we're going to actually stop. I know it's weird, but we're going to stop. Um, three years into his reign, uh, Assyria attacks the northern kingdom of Israel and, and for three years uh, wages war on Israel and conquers it. Israel from that point forward is gone, obliterated. All ten tribes into, vanish into history. No longer distinguishable uh, after that point. This is happening in Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's rule. Okay? His mother, so we, we learned about his father, right? Swell guy. His, his mother, uh, she is the, what we, what we hear is that she is the daughter of Zechariah. So let's get into this, okay? Chapter 29, Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. It's important. Now, it says his mother's name uh, was uh, Avea, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. Now, we're not even going to start uh, verse 3, but I'm going to give you a little teaser. Okay, In the first year of his reign, in the first month, okay, what does that mean? The first thing he did, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Okay? So we're going to begin to see who Hezekiah is. Now, the reason that I wanted to go through this, listen, his mother uh, has ties to, if we look in Isaiah chapter 8, is it for the screen? Do you have 8 too for the screen real fast? Okay, this is his mother. Um, this is, so this is from the book of Isaiah. It says, and I will get a reliable witness, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of that guy, to attest for me. Okay? Now, this is the deal. Okay? Uh, check out the, uh, the ancestry here. Okay? So his mother is the daughter of this guy. The reliable witness, okay, whom Isaiah called on. So what scholars believe is that, the, that uh, Hezekiah's family actually had pretty close ties to Isaiah the prophet. Which is interesting because Isaiah will prophesy in Hezekiah's day. Okay? But what we see is that there, there may have been some significant relationship here. And, and the reason that that's important is because look at his father. Right? 
His father was corrupt and awful. But if there's this relationship with Isaiah the prophet, we can only guess that maybe that's where Hezekiah, through his mother and that relationship, began to burn for the Lord. But here's what I want to ask you today. What's our excuse? The number one excuse that we come up with in terms of why we are not radically living in accordance with the Lord, the number one excuse is our circumstances. What excuse would you have brought in here today? If we were to really be able to strip it all away and I were to be able to ask you and get an honest answer of why have you not given everything over to the Lord? Why have you not lived in sacrifice to the Lord? The number one thing we would come up with is some excuse of our our circumstances. And listen to me, I'm not minimizing some of the things that you've been through. I don't know all of your stories and I know some of you probably could tell stories that would make us weep and weep and weep because of the brokenness that maybe you've walked through. I'm not saying that those things don't matter. But what I'm saying is you will never live in the fullness that God has called you into if always those circumstances that you've walked through are an excuse. Rather, what we have to do is we have to bring those circumstances, we have to bring that pain, we have to bring that hurt, whatever it is, we have to bring it before the Lord because the Lord wants to do a work of healing and restoration so that we can walk in fullness. But most of us, our apathy is bound up in our circumstances. And I want you to read Hezekiah's circumstances. And I want to fairly ask you the question. This was his circumstance. And he became a powerful reformer for the Lord. What is your excuse? Well, my family. Check this family out. Like, how how would you like to go to school? And your dad's the one, like, destroying the house of the Lord. And building idols in its place for him to be worshipped, right? You'd have your head in the locker, right? Like, don't ask me about my dad, right? And some of you lived that, like legit, lived that. Our circumstances are no excuse for us not living in the fullness of what God has asked us to live in. And it's not because God's saying, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Will you just get over it? That's not because God's saying that. The reason that there's no excuse, listen to me, is because God's grace is that big. You have to hear this. The reason that we cannot bring an excuse of our circumstances before the Lord as a reason for why we're not living in the fullness that he's called us to is because his grace is too big for those excuses to swallow up your destiny. Do you hear that? You, can, you have one or two options here. You can either refrain from coming to the Lord and stay bound in your circumstances, or you can test the grace of God and go, wait a minute, test God? I didn't say test God. I just said test his grace. See how big it is. I dare you to come into contact with the grace of God with whatever it is that you are bringing to the table. I dare you to come before the Lord and see if that that circumstance measures up to his grace and see if his grace cannot overcome. The reason that most of us don't do that is because we know that it will overcome and then then what's my excuse? If God heals me, then what's my excuse? Right? Come on. 
if, if we're going to shift things, if you're going to be the generation that lives according to what God has asked you to live, we've got to first come to him with all of our junk, with all of our circumstances, with all of our excuses. And we've got to say, you heal and deal with this as you've promised. And I will walk according to that healing and fullness. Yeah? That's step one. All right? That's Hezekiah's history. We're going to read about some pretty incredible stuff. And I'm just saying, right off the bat, this generation has no excuse. You have no excuse. The grace of God is too big for our excuses to stand. You with me? God, help us to see that that's true. Man, some of us in here, wow, some of us in here, just they, we just need the encounter. Because we've heard about the grace of God. We've heard people maybe even talk about it. We've heard testimony of it. We've, we've been around church, maybe, and, but we just haven't actually ever encountered you. And so, God, I just pray right now that in this room where there's people that are dying for an encounter with God, that that would occur. That they would meet with you. That they would humbly come after you and say, God, I need you to show up in my life. And God, would you answer that cry with with just your power and your presence. God, would you just come and rush in and invade the lives of those who need a touch from you? God, would you wipe away all of our excuses? Would you bring us to our knees in humility before the grace of God? God, you are big enough to restore us. You're big enough to heal us and you're big enough to allow us to be used in the bringing of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. So God, I just pray that our excuses would be no more, that our circumstances in our past would fade in light of your grace, that they would become markers of your glory and not excuses for our apathy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. You guys are dismissed. Hey, and this is a new group, so what I'll tell you is you're dismissed and not released. And what I mean by that is you can't actually get up. You're dismissed from this room. But don't check out from what God has been saying to you. Don't do the normal church thing like, okay, Sunday school, off the list. Do-do-do, here I go to the next thing. Like, if God spoke to you this morning, stay in it. Stay on it. Ask him about it later. Meditate on it. Pray into it. Get into the scripture. Go, God, how do you want to teach me more? Do you see what I'm saying? Stay engaged with the spirit of God longer than just, whoop, got it off the list. You understand? All right. So, okay. You're dismissed, not released. Very good. Okay. Now you know what it means. See ya.